Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. Today is Thursday, the 27th of September, 2018, and this is episode 82A. This is an impromptu special extra podcast and is not part of our regular weekly schedule. It has been recorded to mark the rededication of the Western Front Association's memorial on the Ricaval Bridge near St Quentin in France this coming Saturday, the 29th of September 2018. The WFA memorial on the bridge marks its capture by men from 137 Staffordshire Brigade, which was part of the 46th North Midland Division, on the 29th of September 1918. I interviewed Jim Tanner, a former British Army Brigadier and Chairman of Trustees at the Staffordshire Regimental Museum from his home in East Anglia about the operation and the capture of the bridge and why it was important to remember this event a century on. Jim, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about today the capture of Riquival Bridge uh, at St Quentin Canal in September 1918. Before we get into the detail of what actually happened on that day, could you start the interview by giving us a, a rough background about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, certainly, uh, and thank you very much for um, uh, for asking me to do this. I'm, I was a soldier. I was commissioned in the Staffordshire Regiment um, way back in 1976 and um, spent my, my life there finishing off as a brigadier in 2011. That was the last colonel of the, of the Staffordshire Regiment before we were amalgamated, um, became the Mercian Regiment. And I've had a huge interest in the history of my regiment and in British military history in general uh, throughout my my life. And so much so, I'm, I'm the chairman of trustees of the Staffordshire Regiment Museum. And of course, like all of us, uh, people of my generation, although as we see uh, so many youngsters today, we have a particular interest in the Great War. So I've taken quite a lot of effort to find out as much as I can about my regiment's history, the, the, the story of the South Staffordshire Regiment or North Staffordshire Regiment over that period. Now, Saturday marks the centenary of the capture of the Riquefort Bridge in France. Could you give us some background on, firstly, what was the military situation in late 1918? What action was planned around the Riquefort and why was the bridge important? The Western Front uh, was on the move uh, by the middle of 1918. Um, we've seen in the press recently the commemoration, the way things changed from the Battle of Amiens uh, in uh, August 1918, leading up to final victory over this period known as the Hundred Days. And the German army just despite its uh, massive reinforcement when it flooded men from the Eastern Front after the collapse of Russia towards the end of 1917, the German army had, uh, without a doubt, run out of steam. And although the great army that the Americans were building on the Western Front hadn't quite taken effect when these battles were launched, that was certainly uh, influencing the Germans. The Germans knew that uh, by the middle of 1918, they couldn't win the war. They were still hoping for some sort of negotiated peace, but they didn't reckon for the way the Allies were now going to conduct as uh, Marshal Foch, the, the, now the Generalissimo, Marshal Foch had designed his grand offensive. And uh, a massively important part of that offensive was, was the British Army. Uh, I think I can say with all sincerity that the main effort lay with the British Army, certainly from the middle of 1918. As I said, the Americans hadn't really started to take effect the French, the fantastic French army was exhausted, uh, although certainly holding its own. But what the, the army was up against was 
the massive fortification uh, represented by the what the British called the Hindenburg Line. It's a bit of a misnomer. Germans called this the Siegfried Stellung, the Siegfried position. It would have been more than two years in the making. It might be remembered that um, the Germans had withdrawn to the Siegfried Stellung in the spring of 1917 after their huge losses on the Somme and at Verdun. Uh, they needed to shorten the line, but they left that position in their great offensive in March 1918, uh, and when that ran out of steam, of course, the Allies began to turn the tables on them. The Siegfried Stellung was a fortress of great depth and complexity. Uh, multiple lines of trenches and concrete bunkers and shelters, great swathes of barbed wire. And at Ricaval, this bridge, the uh, the bridge here crossed a formidable barrier where the, where the whole Hindenburg line uh, was reinforced by the natural barrier of the St. Quentin Canal. Down here, the Canal du Nord in the um, further north, but here the St. Quentin Canal lying between the villages of Bellicourt and uh, the town of St. Quentin. So what's the topography like on the St. Quentin Canal? The, the countryside is rolling, um, typical, beautiful French countryside, rolling, lowish hills. But the canal, um, it's extraordinary when you stand on the bridge. There's an amazing photograph, um, one of the best-known photographs of the First World War of Brigadier John Campbell, VC, commanding 137 Staffordshire Brigade, standing on the bridge, the Rickerville Bridge, addressing the soldiers of the brigade as they line the east bank, the German bank of the canal. And you can see there, the, the canal was in a, an extraordinary cutting in this area, a um, uh, cutting about um, uh, 50 feet deep at, uh, at quite an extreme angle on both banks, leading down to the to the canal itself. And the canal, or eight to 10 feet of water that flowed underneath the Rickerville Bridge with, um, with brick-lined sides. Um, it's an extraordinary place because just further north, about about 1,500 uh, metres to the north, the canal disappears um, into a tunnel, the Bellicourt Tunnel, and goes for some way uh, further north. The tunnel built at the time of Napoleon, uh, south of the bridge, the land eases off so that down at the village of Bellinglees, actually the ground is much flatter and these great steep embankments uh, are not present. But all in all, it was uh, an extremely formidable obstacle. And General Rawlinson commanding fourth army his plan was really he put he put the main effort behind uh, the australian and american corps it's a very strong corps under john monash uh, to the north where they could cross over the top they wouldn't have to go through any water they cross over the top of the tunnel of course the germans had had uh, reinforced their defenses here considerably and the 46th north midland division to the south of the australians and the americans was giving given the task of crossing the canal. The division didn't hold out much hope for success. And they think that General Boyd, commanding the division, that it was his very words, although they were ascribed to a staff officer, that the 46th North Midland Division would again um, be committed to a sacrificial stunt 
in order to take the pressure off the Australians and the Americans, who it was um, expected would have success in the north. As it turned out, the situation was reversed uh, for uh, the Australians and for the North Midlanders. So we come we come to, to the 46th Midland Division, of which 137 Brigade was part. Now, what units made up 137 Brigade? And I wonder if you could give us a bit of history into the North Midlands, should we say, rather unfortunate history. The 46th it was a pre-war territorial force division. It had um, uh, was the first formed territorial division to go to France in 1915. And without a doubt, it has had a difficult time over the next couple of years. It, its worst day was actually at the Hohenzollern Redoubt at Luce in October 1915. But the division was largely known for its failure at uh, Goncourt on the Somme on the 1st of July 1916, where the 46th North Midland Division, the 56th London Division, were committed to a, uh, really, this sacrificial stunt against the uh, the stronghold of Goncourt on the northern edge, not intended as part of the main Somme offensive, but to take German reinforcements away from uh, Haig's main battle to try and take the pressure off. And it was an utter disaster. Disaster. The Corps commander, General Doyley Snow, uh, rather wrote off the 46th North Midland Division and stated that they lacked offensive spirit, um, which is a pretty damning blow. A combination, really, between pretty mediocre leadership by the general commanding the division, Montague Stuart Wortley, and actually an impossible task against extremely strong German position where the Germans knew that um, both divisions were going to attack. The brigade, the division had a change of leadership, a fantastic organising general, uh, Major General Thwaite, commanded the division until he handed over just really, just before this battle of the St. Quentin Canal to Major General Gerald Boyd. DCM, that shows something. Uh, Gerald Boyd had um, been an infantryman in the Boer War and had won the Distinguished Conduct Medal. And here he was, a Major General, uh, commanding a fighting infantry division in 1918. The division uh, had, of course, by uh, late 1918, the whole makeup of the British Army had changed somewhat with uh, conscripts, the mixing up of units a little. But uh, it is without doubt when you read the stories of all of the units in the division. It retained its territorial force character greatly. Its three brigades had been together before the war. 137 Brigade, the Staffordshire Brigade, uh, 138 Brigade, Lincolns and Leicesters, and 139 Brigade of Sherwood Foresters, the Knotts and Derby Regiment. By September 1918, all of these brigades, uh, we know, had been reduced to three battalions. So committed to this attack on the canal was the 5th the 1st, 5th South Stafford, the 1st, 6th South Staffords, and the 1st, 6th North Staffords. So these three units, or these three battalions, are part of the ones we said brigade, were going to storm the canal, get across the cutting and scale up the other side. So what happened on the day? Uh, 137 Brigade was given the task of, uh, of storming the canal. The GOC had designed his plan that um, 137 Brigade would lead the attack and in support would be 138 Brigade on the left and 139 Brigade on the right in simple terms. The uh, 137 Brigade was aligned from the north, the 6th North Staffords, the 5th South Staffords and the 6th South Staffords. Their task was unenviable. They there was huge detailed knowledge of the makeup of the Hindenburg Line. 
the British army had very detailed plans captured from the very methodical Germans, uh, aerial photography. So they knew what was facing them. There were a number of uh, methods that were adopted to afford some guarantee of success. It goes without saying that the artillery barrage, there was two and a half days of preparation. And although this time of the war, it seems unusual for there to be such intense artillery preparation for such a battle. The Germans knew the British were coming because they had to come. So there was no hiding, just the Germans didn't know what date, day or time. So an enormous bombardment of a thousand or so field pieces, uh, around 600 heavy artillery pieces and um, and mortars, uh, intense machine gun barrages, all designed to make it extremely difficult for the Germans to move so they couldn't reinforce, they couldn't even feed themselves uh, within their position. Now, one three seven Brigade would advance behind a methodically timed barrage, moving at uh, 100 yards every two minutes. And again, it seems, uh, it makes it sound as though this was a reenactment of the first day of the Somme. It certainly wasn't intended that way. It was stunningly successful. Uh, the remarkable thing to me in studying this battle is, is how uh, every part of it, the timed plan for the artillery, was met with the soldiers uh, meeting their objectives pretty well exactly on time, consolidating and then moving on again. But they had the problem of the canal. All of the battalions, the leading companies were issued with scaling ladders, uh, ropes, blocks and tackle, cork mats in the in the south, in front of the six South Staffords at Bellinglees, there was less water, but a lot of deep mud. Uh, empty petrol tins uh, made into little bridges. One of the uh, interesting things about that famous photograph is you can see some of the men. The photograph was taken the day after the battle um, in the early evening, and some of the men had put their life jackets back on. Uh, one of the divisional engineers had come up with an idea that uh, if the men wore life jackets, then the water would hold no real peril. Uh, and so 3,000 life jackets were brought down from the Channel ferries uh, and issued to uh, 137 Brigade. And when you read about uh, what some of the men did, they plunged into the water. A lot of them couldn't swim. Um, but held up by the life jackets and those stories of drowning and they were across the the canal they were through the german outpost line in an extremely short amount of time and up the other side helped also considerably by coincidentally some very thick fog which appeared on the battlefield just before zero hour at 5:50 in the morning and although that provided great challenges to maintaining direction uh, the officers were out in front with their compasses and they knew where they were going. And although the German machine guns put up an intensive barrage across the front, they were firing blind. And actually, the soldiers got through by far the worst of it uh, very quickly. The German artillery barrage, the counter barrage, came down too late. 137 Brigade was out in front of the German barrage before it had any effect. Well, two questions um, always, have always troubled me about the operation. Is Firstly, why didn't the Germans blow the bridge in the first instance, and secondly, why didn't they blow the bridge once the offensive started? Uh, the bridge was extremely important. Of course, it was extremely important to the British Army. That great challenge of the of fighting on the Western Front was how the British, time and again, got into 
the German front line. But exploiting success was extremely difficult over shell-torn mud and water. But uh, therefore, the bridge was vital. The bridge both at Ricaval, less slightly less important than the bridge at Bellingly, but uh, it was vital. It was maintained. But <laughs> the bridge was vital to the Germans too, because the only way their men could be resupplied on the West Bank, and there was a considerably deep uh, German forward zone on the West Bank, was the use of both bridges. And uh, you look at photographs of, uh, of the time and uh, uh, numerous little footbridges that cross the canal. Um, but your question was why also, why on earth didn't they blow it up? There are very strict rules about demolition of bridges to this day. I, mean, I have to say the British Army has long been fixated by what we call reserve demolitions. And although you might be the officer responsible for the blowing of the demolition, you could very rarely act on your own authority. And so the German, whoever he was, the German officer responsible for the blowing of that bridge, perhaps he was killed. There was certainly a party of uh, German soldiers who attempted to put right what had gone extremely wrong when they realized that there were British soldiers on the bridge and up the banks of the canal. Uh, certainly a small group of soldiers tried to, uh, uh, because the demolition charges were all still there and the wiring was still there. But Captain Humphrey Arthur Charlton of the 6th North Staffords, uh, he and a bunch of soldiers, one of them with a Lewis gun, got onto the bridge and um, they dispatched the Germans very quickly. Captain Charlton and Corporal Openshaw of the Royal Engineers then very quickly ripped out all the wires, pulled some of the charges and chucked them down in, into the water, and the bridge remained intact. So what was the outcome once the, once the bridge was, was um, uh, captured intact? Well, it was fantastic success. Uh, very difficult communication rearwards was still extremely difficult, and, but the, the success signal was going up all along the front. It was a white over white over white illumination. As soon as 137 Brigade got forward, it broke through the Hindenburg line, uh, the main line, extremely uh, quickly. German soldiers were stunned, of course, by the bombardment, but also extremely surprised to suddenly find Tommy Atkins with a fixed bayonet dropping down into his trenches. And uh, 137 Brigade got forward to their objective called the Brown Line. That was consolidated. The whole time for this attack was about five hours, five and a half hours, if I remember correctly. And in that time, the two supporting brigades, Lincolns and Leicesters on the left, uh, the Sherwood Foresters on the right, they were over all the bridges and uh, they were ready to go forward again. And by the end of the day, they were on the division's final objective. Uh, it had not really been, not, a, not an operation on this scale with such success expected like that. And to the north, the Americans had had a dreadful time. Extremely strong German defense. The, the Americans can't be challenged for their bravery, but they were inexperienced in many places losing their way. But the success of the North Midlanders to their south did mean that the Americans and as the Australians started to pass through them, they could also start to e exploit. And uh, by so by the end of the day, although on the left, the Australian Corps' objectives had not been met, Ninth Corps' objectives on the right had been met and the Corps was ready the following day to pass 
through the 32nd Division. So uh, it had gone like almost like clockwork. There were casualties, of course, but casualties were, were astonishingly small for uh, 46th Division, about 800 casualties in all, only about 10% of those killed. Uh, the division had about 4,500 German prisoners who it was trying to deal, uh, the division was trying to deal with a large number of them, nearly half of them had been discovered in the Bellinglees tunnel, uh, just down from the, uh, near the village of Bellinglees, this great big German shelter that they dug, but about two, two thousand, two and a half thousand men found in there, almost out of their wits from the, from the barrage, and then, of course, the British soldiers pouring down on top of them. So why do you think the battle has been remembered in the way it has? Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? There's no... There's no great memory of this. The fact that this was uh, that the victory that came about in 1918 very much a, a result of what the British were achieving, the British Army was achieving in the second half of that year, uh, clearly at the top of its game. We've all forgotten that there was an astonishing victory. I, I'm not sure why. Of course, we've. Uh, I thought we were beyond this uh, narrative that always emphasised the the enormously bloody battles of the Somme and Passchendaele as, as epitomising the dreadfulness of the First World War and the utter incompetence of British generals. And we rather ignore the successes of the British Army in the field, what was achieved by the ordinary British soldier, and we forget that Thomas Atkins and his splendid officers. You look at some of these officers. Uh, the, uh, the brigade commander, 137 Brigade, uh, John Campbell, was a guardsman. He'd won the Victoria Cross on the Somme, commanding his battalion. His brigade major, Captain Archie White uh, Green Howard, he had the Victoria Cross also from the Somme. So the um, the gilded staff, who we all imagine sat in its shadows, drinking champagne. These fellows were all in the front line, and the regimental officers are uh, looking through the some of the stories of the regimental officers here. Many of them from the rank. One of the South Stafford uh, young officers had been a sergeant in the medical corps. One had been a lance corporal in the veterinary corps, but all now extraordinarily capable. And uh, with these soldiers who, despite all the appalling experiences that a lot of them had gone through, were back there and, uh, and not giving uh, the Germans an inch. Now, you're going to France on Saturday, which is the Saturday that's coming up, with a group from the Staffordshire Regimental Museum to mark the capture of the bridge. What will be happening on the day at Ricaval in France? Yeah, we're going to, um, uh, actually, we're going over on um, Thursday. We're going to, we're going to Goncourt to, uh, I'm going to be joined by uh, Levison Wood Senior, who has written an astonishing um, detailed history of the first 5th uh, North Stafford, the Potteries Battalion. That battalion had been broken up in, um, in the, 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 uh, the reduction of brigades to three battalions in January 1918, but a lot of those men were in the, um, in the 6th North Staffords uh, for this battle. Uh, so we're going over on Thursday, Goncourt on uh, Friday, and then on Saturday the 29th, that's the 100th anniversary. So we've got a pretty busy day Walking the battlefield from the Australian Memorial, the 4th Division's Memorial, which was the start line for the 29th of September, down to Rikavar Bridge, down to Bellinglees, um, then up the other side to the 46th Division Memorial to the final objective 
of 137 Brigade. Actually, we're then going to go um, a little further east to Mannequin Hill. Where on the 3rd and 4th of October, the division had a miserable time on the um, Beaurevoir line, uh, fighting into um, the last organised defence of the Germans. But it was where it's hugely significant. It's where Lance Corporal Bill Coltman uh, was awarded the Victoria Cross. He was a staff. He was a stretcher bearer, bearer in the um, in the Sixth North Staffords. By that day, he already had he'd had a ministration in dispatches on the Somme in 1916. But by that day, he had a military medal and bar, a distinguished conduct medal and bar, and then he was to get the Victoria Cross, the most highly decorated British other rank of the of Britain and the Empire of the whole of the First World War, and a stretcher bearer. Uh, so we'll do that. But on Saturday, we're being joined by Chairman of the Western Front Association, Colin Whitestaff, Gary Sheffield, um, some other members of the association. And on Sunday, we will gather again because the French have laid on a series of commemorations at the Australian Memorial at Rikaval Bridge again and at the American Memorial to the north. Uh, and then we'll come home. Now, if people want to find out more about the capture of Rikaval Bridge and also the Staffordshire Regiment, where should they go? Uh, we've got a fine museum just outside Litchfield, where the old, our old regimental depot was uh, at Whittington Barrett on the main road there. Pretty easy to find. They can go online to staffordshireregimentmuseum.com, where we've got a very active website. One that joys the museum, uh, we've got two fairly unique things, we think. We built a First World War trench around the museum, the Coltman Trench, um, some, goodness me, 18 years, 18, 19 years ago now, uh, where we take in school groups, very busy program, and we have uniformed education volunteers who uh, guide uh, all visitors through the trench uh, and describe uh, the experience of the British soldier in the First World War. And we have a very active uh, research group. We've we've dug out all sorts of stories from uh, this Battle of the St. Quentin Canal. And the delight will be that the weekend we will have two brothers whose grandfather is in that famous photograph on the canal bank and a, a young officer, Lieutenant Colonel of the Medical Corps, whose great uncle uh, was there and won a military medal with the North Staffords on that day. Um, uh, sorry, a bar to his military medal. He already had one uh, on his chest. And we can uh, we spend a lot of time uh, research volunteers uh, building up all of these stories. So um, uh, visitors we're open seven days a week. So uh, and visitors are, are hugely welcome. Jim, thank you very much for your time. Oh, a real pleasure, Tom. Thank you. You have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.